Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Wednesday, January 25th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Watch for some scattered snow showers across eastern Iowa today. This system still carries the potential for a trace or two-inch snow in the area with some slick roads also possible. This will need to be watched for both the morning and evening commutes. Looking ahead, the next system isn't far off and is still on track to affect our area on Friday morning. This system also has the potential for minor snow accumulation and slick roads. A third system moves in this weekend and has the potential for moderate snow accumulation in portions of eastern Iowa. With each of these systems, cooler temperatures will be dropping south. This, combined with increasing overall snow cover, favors a colder pattern into next week. Well, the front page of the Courier today is all about school choice. But there are two other articles on the front page. They are shooting targeted at youth program and ban on tenure shelved again. And there's a story, private schools rejoice for choice. But we begin reading the top story on the front page, school choice bill signed by governor. Legislature passed bill at 12.30 a.m. on Tuesday after eight hours of debate. The story was written by Aaron Murphy, Tom Barton, and Caleb McCullough of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. And it begins with a photograph of Governor Kim Reynolds as she greets children that have been seated around the front area of the room where she'll make the announcement. Dateline Des Moines. Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law Tuesday a bill that will eventually spend $345 million a year of public money on private schools. Her signature came after the legislature passed the bill in the early morning hours Tuesday, following more than eight hours of debate, exactly two weeks after it was introduced in the midst of National School Choice Week. Quote, what an amazing day for our children, she exclaimed to a crowd of children, parents, lawmakers, and other supporters gathered in the Iowa Capitol Rotunda. Hours earlier, after the bill cleared the final Senate hurdle at roughly 12.30 a.m., Reynolds celebrated with fellow Republicans just behind the Senate chamber. Quote, For the first time, we will fund students instead of a system, a decisive step in ensuring that every child in Iowa can receive the best education possible, Reynolds said in a statement. Quote, Parents, not the government, can now choose the education setting best suited for their child, regardless of their income or zip code. With this bill, Iowa has affirmed that educational freedom belongs to all, not just those who can afford it, unquote. The House was considered the final potential stumbling block for the proposal. Despite its Republican majorities, the House failed to pass similar proposals each of the past two years, but passed the governor's new, much broader proposal by a 55-45 to 45 vote Monday evening. Reynolds made what she calls school choice a top issue of her 2022 re-election campaign, which she won by 17 percentage points. However, this year's proposal 
is dramatically more expensive than the previous two. It eventually will make nearly $7,600 in state funding available to every Iowa K-12 student who attends a private school. There are 33,692 Iowa students enrolled in private schools in the 2022-23 school year, according to State Education Department. Reynolds's proposal, House File 68, creates taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts in the first year valued at $7,598, the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education that families can use for private school tuition and other education expenses. The program would be phased in over three years. In the third year, all K-12 students, including private school students, would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. The plan also provides new funding to public districts, estimated at just more than $1,200 per student for students who live in the district but attend private schools. And it removes some restraints on other state funding to allow schools to spend that money on teacher salaries. Supporters argued the legislation makes attending a private school possible for more students and taxpayer funding should be used to support any Iowa family who wishes to send their children to a private school. Quote, if a current public school isn't working for a child, those parents need to have a choice. Representative John Wills, Republican from Spirit Lake, and floor manager of the bill in the House, said during debate, only Republicans voted to support the bill. And nine Republicans joined Democrats in opposition. Applause broke out among House Republicans after the vote. Opponents noted the state is responsible for funding public schools, that state programs already exist to help private school students, and that spending $345 million annually on private schools will put future funding of public schools at risk. Critics also note private schools are not held to the same reporting requirements as public schools and can choose which students to accept and which to reject. Quote, public schools accept all kids. Private schools pick and choose. Representative Jennifer Conferst, leader of the House Democrats from Rinzer Heights, said, quote, This is not about school choice. This is about school administrator choice. Democrats derided the program's price tag, saying those funds could better be used to subsidize public college tuition, expand pre-K access, or boost public school funding. Several Democrats raised the contention that private schools are allowed to turn away children with special needs, learning disabilities, or behavior issues. Public schools are required by law to create individualized education plans for students with special needs, but private schools are not. Representative Thomas Moore, a Republican from Griswold, and one of the nine House Republicans who voted against the bill, said he voted no because of strong opposition from his constituents, even though his Southwest school district is strongly Republican. Moore said his constituents were calling on him to vote against the bill. Quote, my vote came down to my constituents, he said. I represent them. I don't represent myself, although I was opposed, unquote. Moore said he opposed the bill's high price tag and the fact a portion of taxpayer funding 
would go to families who already afford private schools. Quote, to me, being a fiscal conservative, to give 33,000 people new money that they already have been spending on their own and don't really need, to me, that's money that we could be using for other purposes here at the Capitol, Moore said. In the Senate, the bill later passed the Iowa Senate by a 31-18 vote, with only Republicans supporting the bill, and three Republicans joining all Democrats in opposition. Senator Zach Walls, Senate Democratic leader, said the proposal will endanger schools in rural communities. He said just a few students leaving a small school can cause significant financial distress. Walls called the proposal rushed, reckless, and radical, unquote. Quote, where's the voice of rural education leaders in this discussion, Walls asked during debate. This bill is Robin Hood in reverse. Senator Amy Sinclair, a Republican from Allerton, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, insisted the legislation will not harm public schools, urban or rural. She also said the new $345 million annual program will not stress future state budgets. Quote, this is not an attack on teachers or public schools. This is not an attack on public education, Sinclair said. Quote, this bill is about rights, parental rights, and choice in education. We empower the parents to make the educational choice that best suits their child, unquote. Legislators from both parties argued public opinion is on their side. Polling from the Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll considered the gold standard in Iowa, showed that a majority of Iowans opposed Reynolds's more limited proposal in 2022. There has been no public polling on this year's bill. Democrats, a minority in both chambers, argued Republicans took actions in both chambers to limit debate. In the House, Republicans created a new Education Reform Committee, then passed a new rule that said even though the bill contains new state spending, it is not required to go through the Budget Committee. In the Senate, Republicans used a debate process rule that effectively barred Democrats from introducing amendments. Quote, it is a willful, blatant way of cutting everybody out from perfecting the bill and listening to our constituents who sent us hundreds of emails about what's wrong with it. Senator Bill Dotzler a Democrat from Waterloo said, quote, Why wouldn't you want to listen to the public? Why wouldn't you want to listen to somebody who might have a good idea? Quote, I've been here longer than any other senator in the room, Dottler added, and I've never seen anything so blatant in all my years, unquote. Earlier Monday, the nonpartisan legislative services agency issued its highly anticipated fiscal analysis of Reynolds's proposal just hours ahead of floor debate on the bill. The agency projects the proposal will cost $345 million annually once fully implemented. The nonpartisan agency's estimates closely align with those made earlier by Reynolds's office, which predicted the program would cost $341 million when fully implemented. Now we have the second front-page story about school choice, this one titled, Private schools rejoice for choice, and it opens with a photograph taken from the balcony above the rotunda, and we see a lot of people milling around down below. 
and the caption says, People stand outside the meeting room for a public hearing on Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to provide state funding assistance for students to attend private school. Dateline Waterloo. Cedar Valley private schools are ready and willing to take on some more students after Governor Kim Reynolds signed her school choice bill into law. The law will allow Iowa families to use up to $7,598 next year to put into educational savings accounts for private school tuition. It would be phased in over three years, starting in the fall, with any students coming from public schools and all kindergartners. By year three, any K-12 student would be eligible at an estimated annual cost of $345 million in taxpayer money. Quote, we are super excited today. Royal Legacy Christian Academy Principal Amber Robinson said on Tuesday, We are very, very excited. Unquote. Royal Legacy Christian Academy, located at 620 West 5th Street in Waterloo, currently serves 36 students from preschool to 6th grade. Robinson said they are able to take 120 more students. Chastity Martin, a school co-founder, said the reason the school opened was to give students options in their education. She said the new law helps with that. Quote, it evens out the playing field, Martin explained. This means a great deal to be able to afford an option for families who may not have considered it an option, unquote. She said the law takes some burden off the staff who have to fundraise. However, there still needs to be more staff hired at the school to adequately serve children with disabilities, Robinson said. She noted that currently the school partners with the Waterloo Community Schools for access to special education programming. She said the school has access to Teach Iowa, an Iowa Department of Education site that lists education jobs to potentially hire more staff. Job fairs are also in the future. Shelby Douglas, the K-12 principal for Bosco Catholic Schools in Gilbertville, said she is in favor of the new law because it will provide families with choice. Quote, one of the teachings of the Catholic Church is the family is the first teacher, she said. Both Royal Valley Christian Academy and Bosco Catholic Schools said they do not require students to be Christians to enroll. The Bosco system, which includes St. Joseph Center in Raymond, as well as Immaculate Conception School and Don Bosco High School, both in Gilbertville, serves 300 students. Douglas said they would be able to accept 50 to 75 more children. She called the program beautiful, saying it will help more students attend the school their family wants. Quote, there are a number of families who would choose a non-public school, she said. But financially, they're right on the cusp, so they don't qualify for local aid, but don't make enough to afford that tuition, unquote. Beside the school choice law, Douglas said she supports Governor Reynolds's other endeavors. Quote, we are in strong support of all of what she's doing, she said, because the intent is to help kids and to help the public schools as well, unquote. Under the law, public school districts will receive $1,205 for students receiving education savings accounts who live within the school district's boundaries. While debate was happening on the floor in the Iowa House, 
the Cedar Falls Board of Education unanimously approved a resolution Monday night stating that the legislature should continue to prioritize and fully invest in public schools, unquote. Quote, the board agrees that parents should have the choice to enroll their child in a private or religious school. However, these institutions should have the same academic accountability and transparency as public schools, states the resolution. The document also points out that the state currently provides significant financial support for school choice and that any expansion of that funding should not be at the expense of public schools. Board Vice President Jenny Lepper expanded on how she believes it's a concerning time for public education in the state of Iowa. As a parent who's had three students who have gone through the public school system here in Cedar Falls, it's a little perplexing for a lot of us to understand why we're looking and trying to solve problems that largely don't exist, said Leeper. We are a state that does offer choice. Parents have choice in our state. Quote, that's never been something that's been an issue. But funding that choice with zero accountability is not only a concern, I think, for taxpayers, for the issue of separation of church and state, but for the education the students may receive. And we just don't know what is happening, unquote. She voiced concerns about public education currently not being funded at the rate of inflation, and how it's hard to believe the money diverted in the bill won't have a negative impact on public education. Board President Susie Hines noted her concern, in terms of fiscal responsibility, that the legislature's Ways and Means Committee did not review any of the bill. Quote, that's extremely aggravating as a taxpayer that we're not taking those steps, she said. Nate Gruber added that, quote, the framing of it around choice is a little disingenuous because there is plenty of educational choice in the state. They've actually made it easier over the past couple of years, he said, most notably through open enrollment. If the bill is addressing concerns about what is being taught or happening inside public schools, Gruber urged people to make an effort to find out more by calling their student's teacher, principal, and superintendent to arrange a visit. Quote, the transparency is there if you seek it, Gruber said. The Waterloo Board of Education did not formally adopt a resolution Monday. However, both Superintendent Jared Smith and Board President Sue Flynn said they will continue to support public schools and do what's best for Waterloo students. Smith noted that administrators thought open enrollment wouldn't hurt Waterloo community schools, but said it hasn't affected the district to the level they believed it would. Quote, I still think with the opportunities our schools offer, regardless of what the outcome is, we offer the best option for any student and family in the Cedar Valley, Smith said. Next, we have a story written by Aaron Murphy, ban on tenure shelved again. Dateline is Des Moines. A legislative proposal to prohibit Iowa's public universities from offering tenure to faculty once again will be shelved, but not before one Republican state lawmaker warned a regents official about what he described Tuesday as conservative students feeling unwelcome on campuses. And another Republican state lawmaker, who has proposed banning tenure in the past, said he will not introduce another proposal this year, but will introduce a bill that takes a different approach in addressing 
his concerns with tenure. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, had introduced legislation that would ban tenure and held a subcommittee hearing on it Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol, after hearing from multiple speakers who were all against the proposal, including a lobbyist who represents the state board that governors Iowa's three public universities and works at the University of Iowa. Holt announced his intention to stop the bill from advancing. However, Holt also gave a stern warning he urged the region's lobbyists to take back to the universities, quote, I'm tired of playing whack-a-mole with these issues going on at the universities, he said. I hope you take the message back. We're watching them, unquote. After the meeting, Holt detailed what he said were complaints from conservative students at UI Iowa State University and the University of Northern Iowa. Quote, I've been contacted by a lot of students in my district and some outside my district regarding, for lack of a better term, just some of the irrational, woke stuff that's going on on college campuses, the feeling that they're denied free speech if you're a conservative, Holt said. Quote, a university is a place where you're supposed to be exposed to a universe of ideas. So I don't care whether it's liberal or conservative, those thoughts should be welcomed in a university, unquote. Holt also told lobbyists for the universities and business groups that he is not deaf and stupid to the concerns they raised with any proposal to ban tenure. He declined to move House File 48 forward. Keith Saunders, who lobbies legislators on behalf of the regents, said eliminating tenure would make Iowa universities incapable of competing for the best professors, which would hinder attempts to educate young Iowans and threatened research funding. Quote, it's a literal competition for us to keep the best and brightest, Sanders said, adding that Iowa would become the only state in the nation without tenure if it were banned. Without tenure, we are not able to attract those faculty. Iowa would unilaterally disarm. If tenure is not able to be offered in Iowa, we would become an educational backwater, unquote. Roughly 42% of Regents' university faculty are tenured, and another 12% are on the track to tenure, a Regents official said during the hearing. The official said roughly six or seven tenured faculty are dismissed over a tenure period. In the Senate, Brad Zahn, a Republican, has introduced tenure bans in the past. He said this year he will not introduce another such proposal. Instead, he plans to introduce legislation that would require universities to conduct more frequent reviews of tenured faculty. Currently, tenure reviews are conducted every six or seven years, a regent official said. Zahn said the bill could reduce that period to every two or three years. Quote, I've learned a lot of lessons over the years, and what I've learned in talking to professors that are in our regents' universities is that I was going to about it in the wrong way, Zahn said. Quote, if I do file a bill, the bill's going to be pretty simple, that the tenure reviews are done on a more regular basis, Unquote. Now, still on the front page, we have one more article that comes to us from the Associated Press. Shooting targeted at youth program, ongoing gang dispute at the root of the fatal attack. Dateline is Des Moines. 
an 18-year-old who police say was involved in an ongoing gang dispute, walked into the common area of an alternative education program for at-risk students and fatally shot two teenagers in a premeditated attack, chasing one of them down and shooting him several more times when he tried to run, according to a charging document released Tuesday. Police said the shooting on Monday that also left the founder of the Starts Right Here program with life-threatening injuries was a targeted attack. The founder, 49-year-old William Holmes, underwent surgery and was in serious condition. Police on Tuesday identified those killed as 18-year-old Gianomi Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr. Holmes, an activist and rapper who goes by the stage name Will Keeps, joined a gang as a 13-year-old in Chicago, but moved to Iowa more than two decades ago and dedicated his life to helping young people in need, according to his LinkedIn page. 18-year-old Preston Walls of Des Moines was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of criminal gang participation. He made a brief court appearance Tuesday with a preliminary hearing scheduled for February 3rd. Walls is jailed on a $1 million bond. The Polk County Public Defender's Office, which will provide his attorney, declined comment. Walls was on supervised release for a weapons charge, and he cut off his ankle monitor 16 minutes before the shooting, police said. Quote, there is nothing random about this, Police Sergeant Paul Parizic said. Investigators say in the charging document that the Walls had a 9mm semi-automatic handgun with a high-capacity extended magazine concealed on him when he entered a common area of the program. The affidavit said Holmes tried to escort Walls out, but Walls pulled away through the gun and shot the two teenagers several times. The document said one victim tried to flee, but Walls chased him down and shot him multiple more times. The document blacked out the name of the victim except the first letter of the last name, C, indicating it was Carr. Holmes was struck by the gunfire. His family said in a statement Tuesday that he has a long recovery ahead and we are deeply appreciative for the care he is receiving, unquote. Despite his injuries, Holmes is now more determined than ever to continue his work with at-risk youth and looks forward to, once again, working hand-in-hand with other community leaders on the mission of Starts Right Here, they wrote. Responding officers saw a suspicious vehicle leaving the area and stopped it. Police said Walls ran, but was found hiding in a brush pile with the 9mm handgun next to him. The ammunition magazine, which has a capacity of 31 rounds, contained three, police said, according to the affidavit. The shooting was captured on surveillance video, and Walls's clothing and his Glock firearm matched those seen on the video. The Starts Right Here Board of Directors said in a statement that classes were canceled for the remainder of the week and that grief counselors will be available. The program, which began in 2021, helps at-risk youth in grades 9 through 12 and is affiliated with the Des Moines Public School District. Quote, these actions are contrary to all that we stand for and point out more must be done, the board said. Quote, 
these two students had hope and a future that will never be realized, unquote. Dameron's father, Gary Dameron, 37, said his son was on track to graduate this spring. He planned to attend Barber College and become a barber, just like his dad. Gary Dameron said he has known Holmes for years and reached out to him personally to get his son enrolled in Starts Right Here. Despite the police claim that the shooting was gang-related, he said his son was not involved in a gang, describing him as family-oriented with a goofy sense of humor. Quote, he just had one of those personalities that when he came into the room, everybody kind of gravitated to him, Gary Dameron said. Gianni Dameron turned 18 on Friday, his father said. Dameron said his son and Carr were best friends. He described Carr as very respectable, cool, and soft-spoken. Last year, Walls was charged with three counts, alleging that he knowingly resisted or obstructed a West Des Moines police officer while armed with a firearm and intoxicated, court records show. His attorney in that case, Jake Firehelm, said that in the incident last May, Walls was part of gathering of young people that police approached. While they were trying to sort out what was happening, Walls, who was 17 at the time, took off. Because he was armed while fleeing from police, he was charged, Firehelm said. Firehelm said he didn't know whether Walls was part of the school program. Keeps said in his LinkedIn profile that he was just 15 when he saw a friend die at the hands of a rival gang. A gun pointed at him, jammed, and he was beaten but survived. Quote, I moved to Des Moines in my 20s and began a new life, focusing on my future and how I wanted to be remembered, Keeps wrote. Quote, I wanted to help others to make change so they wouldn't have to go through life feeling uncared for, unloved, or in a home that wasn't safe, unquote. The Starts Right Here website says 70% of the students it serves are members of minority groups, and it has had 28 graduates since it began. The school district said the program serves 40 to 50 students at any given time. And now, listeners, we want to just remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 25th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. In Waterloo, Barbara J. Keppel, 84 of Waterloo, died on Sunday, January 22, 2023, at Pinnacle Specialty Care, Cedar Falls. She was born on September 23, 1938, in Waterloo, the daughter of Ronald Sr. and Enid Cornelison Geisler. She graduated from East High School, class of 1956. She earned an RN degree from Allen College of Nursing. She married Warren Grapp on June 13, 1959, and they later divorced. Barbara later married David G. Keppel on February 13, 1993, at Nazareth Lutheran Church. He died on March 6, 2020. Barbara was an RN at Medical Associates of Cedar Falls. She enjoyed reading and fishing and did missionary work in Jamaica 
through a local medical missionary group. Services for Barbara are at 2 o'clock p.m. Thursday, January 26th at Lock on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street in Waterloo with a visitation for one hour before the services. Cremation to follow services. Memorials are to Cedar Valley Hospice. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Next, Elizabeth Joan, known as Betty Krupker, 91, formerly of Cedar Falls, died on Friday, January 20th, in Naples, Florida. She was born on November 2nd, 1931, in Cedar Falls, the daughter of Frank and Leona Sikor. On August 3rd, 1963, she was united in marriage to Charles Kepker in Cedar Falls. She was a homemaker to her husband and children. Betty enjoyed having grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and adored her children, son-in-law, and husband Chuck. Since Chuck's passing over four years ago, she lived in Lake Elmo, Minnesota, and spent her winters in Naples, Florida, with her daughter, Lori, and son-in-law, Mark. Betty truly enjoyed bowling, biking, playing golf, and playing cards with friends and family. Visitation for Betty will be held on Friday, January 27th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Richardson Funeral Home in Cedar Falls. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, January 28th, at 10 o'clock a.m., at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Cedar Falls. A luncheon will be served at the church following the funeral service. Interment will follow at Garden of Memories in Waterloo. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Smile Network International and sent to Richardson Funeral Home. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Next in Jessup, Mary Jane Delagardell, 87, of Jessup, Iowa, and formerly of Dunkerton, Iowa, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at Unity Point Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa. Funeral services for Mary Jane will be at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 27, 2023, at St. Anthanasius Catholic Church in Jessup where burial at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Gilbertville, Iowa. Visitation will be from 3.30 p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m. Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the White Funeral Home in Jessup, where there will be a parish rosary at 3.30 p.m. Thursday. Visitation will continue for an hour before services Friday at the church. Memorials may be directed to the family, or a charity of the donor's choice. Online condolences may be posted at www.whitemounthope.com. Mary was born September 20, 1935, in Waterloo, the daughter of Emil Gersh and Agatha Weber Youngblood Gersh. On November 9, 1954, she was united in marriage to Nobert Philip Delagardel in Gilbertville. Mary and Norbert farmed north of Dunkerton, where they raised two sons. They moved off the farm nine years ago to Jessup, where she remained a resident until her passing. Mary was a wonderful homemaker, baker, and cook for her family. She also loved working in her gardens, 
especially her flower gardens. Most of all, she was a wonderful and loving wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. White Funeral Home in Jessup, Iowa, is in charge of the arrangements. And lastly, now, we have the list of death notices listed by the courier. Alan Ackerman, 69, of Cedar Falls, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Arrangements are with Richardson Funeral Service. Janice Abel, 87, of Cedar Falls, died Tuesday, January 24, 2023. Arrangements for Janice are with Dahl Van Hoof Schoof Funeral Home. Larry G. Dunham, 72, of Waterloo, died Thursday, January 19, 2023, at ProMedica, formerly Manor Care, Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation, in Waterloo. Arrangements for Larry are with Locke at Tower Park. Judith Hansen, 80, of Hampton, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at Liberty Hospital in Liberty, Missouri. Arrangements are with Council Woodley Funeral Home. LaRue Krull, 96, of Shell Rock, formerly of Waverly, died Monday, January 23, 2023, at Shell Rock Health Care Center. Arrangements are with Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly. And Beverly A. McCardle, 88, of Brandon, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at her home. Arrangements for Beverly are with the White Funeral Home in Independence. Linda K. Pencil, 70, of Denver, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at Northcrest Specialty Care in Waterloo. Arrangements for her are with Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Denver. And Cheryl Ann Wilson, 65, of Grundy Center, died Saturday, January 21, 2023, at the University of Iowa Hospital. Arrangements are with Abel's Funeral and Cremation Service, Engelkus Chapel, in Grundy Center. Now that's all the obituaries in today's paper. Let's turn now to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the New York Times, written by Jack Goldsmith. Things are looking pretty weird for Merrick Garland. Attorney General Merrick Garland's symmetrical appointments of special counsels to investigate the classified documents imbroglios of President Biden and former President Donald Trump were necessary responses to superficially similar situations. What has not been appreciated is how the parallel investigations will make it hard for the Justice Department to portray its judgments as principled in each case. At this point, Mr. Trump's legal problems seem more serious because of both the scale of the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and the seemingly obstructive behavior associated with their return. But the Biden matter is very serious, too, and has become more so with each new discovery of classified documents in his private Washington office and Wilmington, Delaware residence. The Justice Department search of Mr. Biden's residence late last week, which uncovered yet more classified documents, underscores the stakes. And we do not yet know how or why the documents ended up there, what was done with them, or what other documents and information might yet emerge. The political problem for the Justice Department 
in sorting out these matters is that Mr. Garland was appointed by and serves under Mr. Biden, a past and likely future political opponent of Mr. Trump, the political fate of both men, and thus the potential length of Mr. Garland's tenure in office, may be influenced by the Justice Department's investigative and prosecutorial decisions. According to Justice Department regulations, a special counsel has, quote, independent authority to exercise all investigative and prosecutorial functions of the department and is not, quote, subject to the day-to-day supervision of any department official, including Mr. Garland. Mr. Garland can alter a special counsel's decisions only if they're so inappropriate or unwarranted under established department practices that it should not be pursued, unquote. A high bar. The special counsel's formal independence is supposed to ameliorate any appearance of bias or self-dealing in the department's ultimate decisions. But the highly unusual situation of two special counsels investigating a president and a former president for superficially similar matters raises a novel challenge for the Justice Department, how to persuade the country that it acts fairly and consistently in the two cases. As we learned during the controversy about Hillary Clinton's email server, a prosecutorial decision related to misuse of classified information can turn on fine-grained and often contested judgments about how and why classified documents are transmitted to where they should not be and with what intent. Over the years, it has not been obvious whether the Justice Department treated like cases alike in the sanctions it doled out against senior government officials. Mrs. Clinton, the former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, the former CIA Director David Petraeus, who mishandled classified information. Nor has the Department made clear the extent to which these officials received lenient treatment because of their elevated status or the context in which they were investigated, especially compared with cases like that of Reality Winner, a former National Security Agency contractor who anonymously sent a classified report to The Intercept, and Daniel Hale, a former intelligence contractor who disclosed classified details of the American drone warfare program to a reporter. Even if the Trump and Biden investigations turn out to be factually and legally quite different, as it seems they might, the dual special counsel structure will make it hard for the department to portray its decisions as principled. Normally, in such a prominent side-by-side investigations, an official reporting to the attorney general would ensure that the same legal and discretionary judgments inform decision-making in the two cases. But these decisions are now delegated to the special counsels Jack Smith and Robert Herr, who do not have the incentives or even the mechanism to coordinate their decision-making. Mr. Herr and Mr. Smith will take any public steps along their investigative paths, including a final decision about the presence of any potential criminality and what, if anything, to do about it. These decisions will invariably raise questions about disparate treatment, yet neither special counsel will be in a position to explain how his decisions are consistent with the others, nor can the Attorney General obviously do so, since the key decisions are formally out of his control, 
so long as they stay within broad department guidelines. If Mr. Garland does end up defending the coherence of the decisions, some might question the degree to which the special counsels were actually independent. This potentially very tricky problem might not arise if the Trump and Biden cases turn out to be factually uncomplicated and legally uncontroversial, but that rarely happens, especially when the cases are filtered through the lens of fractured Washington politics, and the appearance as well as the reality of impartial justice matters. The special counsel regulations give Mr. Garland a bit of wiggle room. He can ask each special counsel to explain, as the regulations say, quote, any investigative or prosecutorial step, and can perhaps, through this process, suggest how each counsel can act consistently with the other. He can also order the department to clarify as much as possible the relevant practices and policies to which the special counsels are bound. These interventions, however, could be seen as overreaching and would threaten to diminish independence and credibility of the special counsel decisions. Another possibility is that the problems can be ironed out in the final reports from the special counsels, with the second report explaining how the decision was based on principles consistent with the first. But there is no guarantee that the special counsel who writes the second report will be in a position to make such a representation or will want to. The special counsel regulations were not designed for this serious and challenging problem. Mr. Garland needs to do everything he can to prepare to address it, consistent with maintaining detachment from the cases. It is not an easy task. Jack Goldsmith, the author of this opinion piece, is a Harvard Law professor and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served in the George W. Bush administration as an assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel and as a special counsel to the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. Our next opinion piece comes from the New York Times, and it was written by Michelle Goldberg, titled, Trans Kids Deserve Private Lives Too. Last year, I interviewed Marcy Bowers, president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, for a piece I never ended up writing about youth gender transition. A trans woman, Bowers is a surgeon and a gynecologist who has both delivered thousands of babies and performed thousands of vaginoplasties. One of her patients was the trans reality star Jazz Jennings. When we spoke, Bowers made an argument I think about often, that progressive taboos around discussing some of the thornier issues involved in treating young people with gender dysphoria, including the reality of detransition, are self-defeating. Quote, we don't look unified, she said. We look like we're hiding something, unquote. I ended up abandoning the story I was working on because other writers beat me to it, which left me, honestly, a little relieved. It's not that I was worried about being canceled. Getting yelled at by people on the internet isn't fun, but it comes with the job. Rather, I'd worried that examining the spike in kids identifying as trans could seem like asking the wrong question at a time when trans people are under siege. Still, some questions are nagging. There are kids for whom transitioning is an urgent necessity, 
and laws outlawing their medical care are dangerous and immoral. But I also think we don't understand what's behind the huge increase in adolescents, many with mental health disorders, identifying as trans. Quote, there are people in my community who will deny that there's any sort of social contagion. I shouldn't say social contagion, but at least peer influence on some of these decisions, Bowers said, of the growing number of trans kids. Quote, I think that's just not recognizing human behavior. Because I suspect that, for some kids, gender dysphoria can be part of a broader mental health crisis. I can sympathize with some of the parents in Katie J.M. Baker's recent New York Times article, quote, when students change gender identity and parents don't know, unquote. Baker interviewed Jessica Bradshaw, the mother of a transgender teenager who is on the autism spectrum and who suffers from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, PTSD, and anxiety. Quote, he had struggled with loneliness during the pandemic and, to his parents, seemed not to know exactly who he was yet because he had repeatedly changed his name and sexual orientation, wrote Baker. Bradshaw discovered her child identified as trans only when she saw an unfamiliar name scrawled at the top of a homework assignment. Her kid, she learned, had socially transitioned at school six months earlier and had asked that his parents not be told. She was upset at being kept in the dark. Quote, it should have been a discussion we made as a family, she told Baker. Her distress is understandable. I would be flabbergasted and, frankly, hurt if one of my kids took such a big step without my knowledge. Nevertheless, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that the school did the right thing. Teenagers deserve a measure of privacy and autonomy to work out their identities, gender or otherwise, even if some of their choices and decisions seem like bad ideas to the adults in their lives. Right now, through both lawsuits and state laws, so-called parents' rights advocates are trying to ensure that schools inform families about changes to their children's gender identities. The most immediate victims of such policies are the trans kids who lack supportive families and who stand to lose a place where they can safely be themselves outside of their homes. But all adolescents should have space, independent of their parents, to experiment with identity in reversible, non-medical ways. Such policies can also put absurd burdens on school officials. As far as I know, teachers don't notify parents about whom their kids are dating. If the daughter of a conservative Muslim family decided to take off her hijab at school, most of us wouldn't expect her teacher to report her. But if the parents' rights folks win, teachers will be forced to check in with parents before addressing kids by their preferred pronouns or to call students by names they don't answer to. I certainly think kids should be encouraged to speak to their parents about their gender identity. But there are good reasons some don't want to. And even if the reasons aren't so good, even if parents would ultimately be assets in dealing with gender turmoil, part of growing up is developing trusting relationships with adults outside one's family. We should all hope that our kids find people besides us they can confide in, even about stuff we wish we knew. Of course, not every adult is worthy of confidence, 
The right is good at finding egregious examples of school officials who seem gleeful about indoctrinating kids. Baker cites a presumptuous teacher, Flyer, mentioning in a lawsuit, saying, quote, If your parents aren't accepting of your identity, I'm your mom now, unquote. There is no reason, however, to believe that this is the norm or that the solution is for the state to step in and enforce a new kind of helicopter parenting. It's understandable that many parents are freaked out by the foreign gender landscape their kids are navigating and alienated by what can seem like rigid activist dogma. Telling these parents that their concerns are illegitimate is only going to send them careening rightward. They're entitled to their questions about their kids' lives. But it's not the role of the law to mandate that they get answers. Now, let's return to local news from The Courier. Police arrest man for fake 911 calls. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for calling 911 multiple times when there was no emergency. Police arrested Sean Washington, 44, of 907 Cutler Street on January 18th on one count of making a false report, a misdemeanor. He was released pending trial. Authorities allege Washington placed six 911 calls and one call to non-emergency number using two different phones on the morning of January 18th. He allegedly told dispatchers he wanted help, but when officers arrived at his home at 112 Randolph Street, he wouldn't answer the door, according to court records. On one call, police could hear Washington inside the home. A similar incident involving Washington in April of 2022 led to police closing down part of Hawthorne Avenue when they received a false report of gunfire. Next, a man is arrested on weapons charge following road rage incident, filed by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A Washburn man has been arrested for allegedly flashing a gun during a road rage incident. A woman called police around 1.30 p.m. on January 16th to report that a man in a pickup truck had been following her closely, then pointed a gun as he sped past her on U.S. Highway 218 near Marigold Drive. The woman, who had three children in her vehicle, followed the pickup and called police. An Iowa State trooper spotted the pickup going 81 miles per hour in a 65-mile-per-hour zone on Highway 218, and the truck pulled into a Washburn home. Authorities found an empty holster for a pistol in the vehicle's floorboard, and a silver handgun was discovered nearby in snow next to a privacy fence, according to court records. Officers also found a small amount of marijuana. The driver allegedly failed field sobriety tests, court records state. Shane Dean Gunnus, 39, was arrested for first offense operating while intoxicated, carrying weapons while intoxicated, assault while displaying a weapon, and possession of marijuana. He was released pending trial. Next, we have a casino worker charged with stealing from a patron. Dateline Waterloo. A former Isle Casino Hotel employee has been arrested for allegedly stealing from a patron and from the casino. Stephanie Ann Call, 42, was arrested Thursday for identity theft, fourth-degree theft, and forgery 
as part of an Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation probe. She was released pending trial. Call had worked as a cage cashier at the aisle in July when she conducted an electronic check transaction for $600 for a patron from Hudson. A short time later, Call allegedly conducted a second $600 electronic check transaction without the patron's knowledge, forging the victim's name and pocketing the cash, according to court records. Before leaving for the night, Call allegedly took $15 in cash from the casino, records state. The patron discovered the unauthorized transaction days later when she checked her bank statement, records state. And friends, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 25th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of this paper or the others that we read from around Iowa on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And you can do that at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.